Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, as we turn now to the preaching of your word, I pray that you will open hearts and ears to the truth of your goodness and your grace. God, I pray that you will give us the gift of life here today, that you will sustain our lives for those who have already humbled ourselves before you. And Lord, if there's any among us here who have not understood who your son is, that you will be gracious to us and give us that gift of new life today. Lord, I pray that your people will be strengthened and will endure, that we will look to Christ, our only hope, our best hope of salvation and of life everlasting. Lord, be with us as we feast upon the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that you'll do the same for our sister churches, for Covenant Community Church, for Foundation Church, North Stafford and Stafford Baptist Churches. Lord, like-minded fellowships who turn to your word this morning to be enlivened and strengthened. Lord, I pray that you will use brothers to preach your word boldly to your people. That we will look to you and to no other. That you will strip away every longing that we have for the things of this world. And we'll turn all of our hope, all of our joys, all of our desires and affections on you. Lord, may you do that through the preaching of your word. Father, we pray that you'll be with Rob Stevens of Alethia College Park Church. His wife, Denise, and their three boys. I pray that you will strengthen them this morning. Encourage them in the good work of ministry. Lord, we pray that you will give Alethia College Park Church a a location that they need to continue to gather and to worship you, to make your good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, known among that area and there on the college campus. Lord, they're in need of leaders. Lord, I pray that you'll send them godly men or raise up godly men from within uh, the fellowship who will fill the roles that they need and strengthen that body. Lord, we pray for Pioneers USA, a great missions agency that seeks after those who have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ, who are going to the hard-to-reach places, who are forsaking everything else, all that's comfortable and familiar, willing to go to the unfamiliar, to the hard-hearted places, just so they can tell of your son. Lord, I pray that you will strengthen their steps, give them boldness and speech. May their acts be acts of love and kindness that not presents them well, but leads people to the good news of Jesus Christ, to the gift giver, to the one who is love and kind. And may they know what it means to be forgiven of their sin. And you bring more into your kingdom through that great missions agency. Lord, we pray that they'll reach the shake in India. 87 million people trapped in the false religion of Islam. Lord, that wicked false religion has trapped so many people. We ask that you will release their chains, God, and that their eyes will be open to the glory of Jesus Christ. That what Jesus has already accomplished is enough and is the only way 
to life everlasting. Lord, may they submit to Christ. May they repent and trust in him alone for salvation. And may you raise up brothers among that people to preach your good news to their own people and establish churches and strengthen your people. And from them, the good news will spread to others. Lord, this is a prayer we have for all over the world. That your word will be preached mightily and boldly with truth and love. And Lord, may it not fall in deaf ears today. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, the greatest season of the year is upon us. It really came fast this year. Just a few days ago, we all were celebrating Thanksgiving, remembering who God is and all of his good gifts to us, all that he does for us, all the blessings and the good things that he has done for us in the past year. Most of all, the good gift of salvation through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's officially Christmas. I can say Merry Christmas to you. But you wouldn't know that if you looked all around us that it's now officially Christmas. Because for the last month, everywhere you go, Christmas decorations have been going up. And really, since the first day of November, sounds of jingle bells and other holiday music have been playing in the stores. By the time we get to Christmas Day, they'll be gearing up for New Year's and Valentine's Day. These days, it's hard to enjoy the goodness of Christmas, we'll be so inundated with the business of the Christmas season that it's quite easy to just zoom right past what Christmas is all about. That a little over 2,000 years ago, God became man for you and for me, for our salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the great mystery of Christmas, that God's glory and great plan of grace came to fruition when the virgin gave birth to a son who is both God and man, sent to live the perfect, obedient life, fulfilling the law of God and dying a criminal's death so that his people won't have to. And then rising from the grave on that victorious day, conquering sin and death once for all so that you and I may live again, this time without guilt and shame in the presence of Almighty God forever. The mystery and the goodness of Christmas. I don't care how dirty with sin or unholy you are. God's great plan was his son dying for you by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You who repent and continue to trust in him are set free. And you're promised to have life in God's holiness for all eternity. This is too great. It's too important. There's too much joy to be had to just breeze right by this holiday and just treat it just like an, any other holiday on the calendar. This season is not about the lights and the decorations, the reindeer, vacations, or 
the opportunity to even get more stuff. No, this season is about Jesus Christ manifesting in the flesh to set us free. Without which there is no salvation. There's only condemnation. Because without Christmas, there would be no cross. And then there would be no forgiveness of sin. That is why there is such joy in Christmas. Because the long-awaited Messiah has come. So we celebrate Him. We magnify and thank God for giving us our Lord. This is too awesome to just mention right before we tear open presents. We shouldn't just say it in passing. So we're taking time during the whole month of December to pause from our series through 1 Timothy and to focus on this great day, the Lord's birth, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, historically, it doesn't matter if Christ was born on December 25th or not, if it was some other date. The fact is that we remember and we celebrate Christ's birth at Christmas. That's what's important. Because without Christ, there is no Christmas. There is no holiday to truly celebrate. We need to be reminded of this. We need to step aside from all the bustling and tussling and remember and celebrate in our hearts that Christ has come. We've all seen the bumper stickers on the back of cars and now Facebook, Twitter, Instagram posts that tell us to keep Christ in Christmas, that he's the reason for the season. And this is, this is especially true. We must never forget that. One way to keep our eyes on Christ and our hearts set on him in the holiday season is to practice Advent. Advent's an old Latin term that means coming. In the church for a long time, the Advent season has been used as preparation for celebrating the true meaning of Christmas. Now, many families do it at home. We began as a church to do it when we started. On each of the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we remember the season of waiting for Christ to come to earth. And it ends with the birth of our Savior on Christmas Day, Jesus Christ being born lowly, baby in Bethlehem. Advent has been practiced in the church for a long time. Since as early as the 4th century AD, the church has done it in various ways. Most common today is the lighting of candles on the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas. And we did that this morning. And there's nothing special about the lighting of candles. There's nothing spiritual or miraculous in the lighting of candles. It just signifies the great importance of the season. During Advent, we take a step back and we remember the expectant Messiah that was to come and save His people. We remember the pain and turmoil of God's people in the Old Testament, waiting for their Savior to come and rescue them. But we not only remember the coming of the Lord Jesus that fulfilled the Old Testament promise of the Messiah, we too are also waiting. For those of us who have been saved, we are graciously waiting for Christ's second coming, his promise to return and take us home to be with him forever. Advent is a time to look back and celebrate the birth of Christ 
And it looks forward to his promised return again. God's promise that one day there will be no more seasons of Advent. No more seasons of him waiting to come. Because one day he's coming again and the waiting will be over. God's people will have the fullness of joy and pleasures forever in his eternal presence. Take away all of the decorations, all of the lights, turn off all the holiday music. If we never watch another Christmas movie or TV show, we have reason to celebrate Christmas because the divine plan of redemption has been fulfilled. Over the next four weeks, we're going to look at this great plan and be caught up in the greatness and love of our God. We'll be praising him with songs and carols that tell of the news of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And each week, looking at different aspects of this divine plan of redemption. Each week will be for you to see, to embrace and magnify the glory of our God. That our God in eternity past established the world to display who he is. And he created a people to worship him and save them and have him. All that God is, is being given to us, to us who follow and call him Lord. Now, honestly, we don't do that on our own. No one does. No one simply decides one day to look upon Jesus and call him Lord and see the hope of glory. We all have looked to ourselves or the things of this world and ignore who God is. You see, Christmas first declares us guilty, incapable of saving ourselves and in desperate need of God's mercy. And then the mercy of God is gloriously displayed in the Christ child. In Christ, there is hope. And forgiveness. Christmas leads us ultimately to the throne of the compassionate, loving God who rescues a people who are in rebellion against Him by sending His own Son to save them. Each of us need to be miraculously awakened to this glory and beauty. And God does that to all who are humble in heart and repentant in spirit. God gives this gift, and we respond with praise and adoration for the one who saves us. Advent strengthens our assurance in the promise of God to save, and it opens our eyes to the significant weight that was put on the Christ child at the first Christmas and the exceeding love and delight experienced because the burden of the law was lifted off of our shoulders by the Savior. I hope through this Advent series that you will understand the divine plan that began long before Jesus' birth. It was a divine plan conceived in eternity past, and it's done, accomplished, it's over because of Christ. It's fulfilled. There's nothing else that's needed. And it's one that shapes the whole world, and it's a plan that includes you. To get a grasp of this plan, we're going to look at it today in three parts. 
We're going to begin to open up and see this divine plan. We're going to see God and His glory. The plan that He made and then ultimately His Son who fulfills it. First, God and His glory. And before I go into God and His glory, anything I have to say about God and His glory is only known. I can only share it with you because God has chosen to reveal it about Himself and His Word. It's there we turn to learn about Him. But realize what's known about God in the Bible is not all there is about God. He's infinite, which means there's infinite facets. There's infinite meaning and things about God. And they're not mentioned in the Bible. But what is revealed is massive and is captivating to the soul. It's enough to repent and believe, to be changed and caught up in praising Him, to commit your whole self, your whole life to Him. And that's why we have the Scriptures. To know God and what He has revealed about Himself is a treasure above all other knowledge in the world. There's nothing more pleasing or comforting, more enlivening and filling. To know God and who He is is the essence of joy and happiness. In order to know God, you need to know His glory. To talk of God is to talk of His glory because His glory, when we speak of God's glory, His glory is the display of who He is. It's the going public of His essence. It's the making known of His splendor. The glory of God means the weightiness of his presence. Imagine watching a televised event where a world leader walks into the UN assembly. All the leaders of the world have gathered. It's a packed room. And this world leader walks in. And all the leaders pay homage to this leader by prostrating themselves, lying flat on the floor, their faces on the floor in honor. Imagine that. Imagine being there and witnessing that. Except with God, it's on a whole nother level because everyone will do it one day. You see, God's glory refers to the character of God, which is worthy of all your respect, all the honor you can give Him. You are worthy, our Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. As Revelation 4.11 says, to get a better glimpse into who he is, I read Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 26 earlier. This passage tells of the majesty and the glory of God. Awesome and mighty is our God. I turn there because you need to know that God is able to establish the world and put in place a great plan and has the eternal means to fulfill every detail of his plan. He rules this world and he upholds all of it. And he does it all toward one glorious purpose. There are six aspects to God in the passage in Isaiah. In verse 12, Isaiah tells us that God is infinite in power. He is unlimited in ability. He's not constrained by anything. He reigns and acts as he sees fit with unmatched 
might. In verse 13, God's eternal wisdom is illustrated in the fact that he needs no one to counsel him. He knows everything. Every studied person in the world, the smartest people in the world, still have things to learn. God never does. He's never had to learn. He teaches others. God knows what is best. He never errs and he's always going in the right direction. He's never confused or lost. His decisions are right. His ways are sure. His acts fulfill whatever he sets out to do. And he never winds up different from where he started out at. In verses 15 to 17, we're told nothing in this world compares to God. All the nations are under him. He is unsurpassed. He's in a class all by himself. In verses 18 to 20, they tell us he alone is God. He alone is God. Other gods are worthless idols. If you put God on one side and all of the other supposed gods on the other side, it doesn't matter what religion It doesn't matter even someone who calls themselves a Christian and they have this skewed idea. It's not the God of the Bible. You have the true God and every marred image of him, every wrong idea of him, every false teaching of him on the other side. It's like a tug of war between a Mack truck and a flock of fleas. There's just no comparison to our God. In verses 21 to 24, God tells us he rules over everyone. Every leader is under him. God not only exerted his power and rule when he established the world, he manifests his power in preserving this world and providing for it in every single way. You pick up a pencil because God allows you to. You breathe because God put the air in your lungs. You have joy and good things in your life because the giver of goodness has given it to you. In verses 25 and 26, God is holy. He is perfect and unpolluted from all evil. He is the Holy One. He inherently loves good and hates what's wrong. And he is the one who defines what's good and what's wrong. No one is like our God. Yet there's more to God. That was just one passage out of one book in the Bible. There's more to God. To see this, we have to learn about this great plan that he's told us about. Here are some passages for the basis of this plan. In Ephesians 3.11 This manifold wisdom of God, what I spoke of earlier that Isaiah tells us about, this infinite wisdom, this manifold wisdom of God is known according to the eternal purpose that God has realized or fulfilled in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ's mission fulfilled a purpose that was determined before creation. In Psalm 89, 3, God said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. God swore an oath that his chosen one would ensure that he is true to his word, 
that the line of David will rule forever. His covenant or agreement is with the chosen one who is Christ. Ephesians 1.4 says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. John 17, 3 through 5, part of the high priestly prayer, Jesus says this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, these texts from Isaiah to John to Ephesians, these biblical texts are interconnected. And since, according to Jesus, all of Scripture is about him, these show that the Father and the Son covenanted together long before the first Christmas morning. You see, the mission of Christ to come to the earth was not made up on the fly. There was no plan B. It did not begin when Christ was laid in the manger. It was a plan based on the unchangeable, eternal character of our great God. Some call this the covenant of redemption. Where at some point in eternity past, before God created the world, God the Father and God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, agreed together for Christ to take the mission to obey and suffer in the place of his people. And he was given the people to be their Lord and their Redeemer. Philippians 2 that I read earlier gives us more insight into this aspect. If you want to turn there and look again at verse 6. Verse 5 says, be of same mind with this. Paul is telling the Philippian church and all of us in the church, be of the same mind, have the same understanding as to who Christ, this Christ is. And verse 6 says that Christ had a prior existence as God. And he humbled himself to become part of his creation, to die on the cross and save his people. And with that, verses 10 and 11 say every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So between the greatness of God that we learn in Isaiah 40 that has been revealed to us and the love of God given to us is this divine plan to redeem us. This plan reveals the greatest aspect of God's glory. See, we have God's glory as presented to us in Isaiah as this great, powerful ruler of the cosmos. He has so much power. He holds the world in his hand. And nothing happens without him allowing it and making it happen. That's what we see in the book of Isaiah. And then over in Philippians, we see this great love of Christ, our Lord, Jesus Christ, come to die in our place. And in return... He is given us. We are given to him as a gift from the Father to the Son. We are his people. He is our Lord, our Redeemer. He's our head. 
And in between is this great plan to make all of this happen. For us to see this greatness and glory of God, but not just the might and the power, it's the greatest display of that power combined with the greatest display of God's love. You see, this plan reveals this greatest aspect of God's glory through veiling that glory temporarily through the fall and in the sinful condition of all creation and then the gift of redemption in Christ our Savior. God allowed His glory to be shadowed so the fullest array, the widest, deepest, fullest display of God's glory, of who He is, His person, could be revealed and cherished in the arms of our Savior. In Christ's outstretched arms is a love and grace so full and so able to save you and me and all who put their trust in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. This is where the greatest aspect of God's glory is on full display. His steadfast love and grace. God's entire plan was leading to this display of His glory and grace. God's grace is the pinnacle of God's glory. Before the creation of the world, before the fall, before you were born, God made a plan where His Son would stand in your place, take your punishment, and you, by the faith He gives you, you would sit, stand and be set free and be given new life in Him for His glory. And yet, this glory is not yet fully recognized, but one day it will be. One day, every person will see that Christ is Lord. We wait for that day. We long for that day. Those in Christ are in a second advent. We are waiting for Christ to return when all will see His glory and all will know He's the Lord of all and Savior worthy to be crowned with glory and honor. And all who confess Christ will be taken up in glory to be with Him. For all of us who have received this gift of new life and given a second nature filled with grace, we are made like Him and transformed so that His holiness becomes our holiness. God is true to His Word. In eternity past, He determined to save you. Christ fulfilled His plan where God's glory is revealed to those who can't see it or otherwise receive it. And you and I, the people of God, we receive Christ and we trust Him as Savior and Lord. And now we experience the peace and love His grace brings. We will never be separated from Him again. We will always have Christ forever. May the God who gives grace give you that grace and get His glory. Let's pray.